0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. And our guest for today's discussion is John Shaw, author of Following the Drums, African-American Fife and Drum Music in Tennessee, published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2022. So a little bit more about the book, um, Following the Drums, African American Fife and Drum Music in Tennessee is an epic history of a little-known African American music form. And carefully documenting the music's early uses for commercial advertising and sports promotion, Shaw follows the strands of the music through the year of African American history during post reconstruction up to the forum's rediscovery by musicologists and music researchers during the blues and folk revival of the late 1960s and early 1970s. So overall, following the drums is a journey through African American history and Tennessee history, with a fascinating form of music powering the story. And then a little bit more about our guest speaker today, John M. Shaw is a musicologist, musician, writer and blogger currently pursuing a doctorate at the University of Memphis. So thank you, John, for joining us today on the New Books Network. I'm
1: glad to be here.
0: Awesome. So before we talk about your book here, can you tell us a little bit more about you?
1: Well, I'm probably older than the average doctoral student. I'm 53 years old. I was born in 1967 in uh, Dallas, Texas, but I've lived in Memphis since I was about six years old. And I'm a disciple of Dr. David Evans, the noted folklorist and ethnomusicologist. And uh, it was he that really helped me develop my love of this discipline and uh, Black music in general, music of the Black diaspora. So I'm very, uh, you know, interested in documenting particularly disappearing uh, African-American musical traditions, or endangered might be a better term, uh, traditions that are being threatened by the rise of commercial music and the recording industry. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'm very much into brass band music, Mardi Gras Indian tribe culture, uh, black pipe and drum, black majorette drumming uh, in Memphis and other southern cities. Uh, some of these traditions that are Sadly, fading because of the popularity of radio and television and TikTok and other such uh, young people's pastimes. Yeah,
0: gotta watch out for the youth. Just kidding. Yeah. Um, but cool. So kind of thank you for paying this bigger picture here for us in terms of like where your interests are and, you know, your background. So, you know, talking more about this book within this journey um, that you've been talking about, how did this actual book get started? Like how long ago well, did you start it? That kind of thing.
1: It's kind of uh, bizarre because I, I mentioned it in the foreword to the book. Uh, my best friend in high school was named Jesse Yancey. He was a uh, African-American football player and he lived out, in Oak Grove, which was a rural community beyond Bartlett, and sitting on his front porch with him one day, we heard drums booming from a distance, and I asked him what it was, and he had a dry sense of humor. He said, uh, there's a tribe back in these woods. Well, I knew he was pulling my leg, but later on, I asked another friend of mine that had been there that day, years later, what actually was that? He said there was something going on at a lot. So you know uh there were black benevolent societies in rural Shelby County like the Independent Pole Bearers uh which was later changed to Pole Bearers but I discussed that in the book they did not make an error they meant to say Pole Bearers and I that's more firmly discussed in my book they drilled with poles to drums but in addition uh, the Social Benevolent Society, the United Sons and Daughters of Zion, and it was the tradition to beat these drums to announce that someone in the society had died. Uh, there's some evidence that in, you know, way back they were played at funerals. So this may have been what I heard. I, I still don't have definitive knowledge of that, but it was early enough, 1983, that it might have still been going on. What I do know is that later on, about 2017, I became very interested in Fayette County, which is a county in Tennessee that once was about 98% African-American. It sits directly north of Marshall County, Mississippi, which has produced some very famous blues musicians like R.L. Burnside and Junior Kimbrough. And so I'm thinking demographically, geographically, as far as the landscape of the terrain, Fayette and Marshall are twins, but though one's in Tennessee and one's in Mississippi, so why can I not name a blues musician from Fayette, (laughs) and did they ever have Fife and Drum Bands? Now, it turns out Mississippi Fred McDowell was born in Fayette, but I did not, but he's associated with Mississippi. So uh, I did research. I did a Google search. I said, Fife and Drum Band, Fayette County, Tennessee. And got results. But the results I got blew my mind. It didn't say Fayette. It said United Sons and Daughters of Zion, number nine, fife and drum band, Bartlett, Tennessee. I live in Bartlett. I'm living here now. I went through all, almost eleven grade school in Bartlett. So you can imagine my shock. And I was even more shocked to find that this band was recorded by a Swedish man named Bent Olsen and had been released on a compact disc. So, then when I started digging further, who was this band, how did Bartlett have a Black and drum band, because the genre is associated with Mississippi, I found that the leader of this band was named Gus, and I about fell out of my seat, because I graduated from Bartlett High School with his grandson, Bobby (laughs) Merriweather, and knew Bobby. So, I started having to dig into this. This is important. Most people think that Black Fife and Drum is restricted to Mississippi. Some people who read about it know that it once was found in Georgia in 1970, but there's been very little reference to it in any other southern state, and nobody's ever tried to connect it to anything way back. Everybody says, oh, it sounds vaguely West African, which it does, but nobody's ever said, well, how far back does it go or what are the roots of it? And so as I did this research, I really wanted to do that. And one reason it had never been done is that newspapers were not searchable by keyword. You would have had to go through archives and libraries and pour over reels of microfilm for years. And you might not find anything. But now we have newspapers.com, newspaperarchive.com, uh, genealogy Bank. And these allow you to search lots of digitized newspapers by keywords such as Fife Drum. And when you do, you start seeing all of these references to Black political rallies during Reconstruction with Fife and Drum Bands, Black Fife and Drum band, And even more remarkably, Black drummers before the Civil War and Black drummers in the Confederate units. I mean, I was just ash- astounded. So I knew there were black drummers in the Union Army. I did not know there were black drummers in the Confederate Army. So it was very bizarre to find all of this and important. I found out that the drummer who played for Andrew Jackson at the Battle of Chalmette was named Jordan Noble Banks. I didn't know that we knew his name. He's a black man. He played at Jackson's funeral procession in Ohio. Uh, I was just absolutely amazed. Um, we have the names of legendary black drummers from the revolutionary war who die in the 1850s in places like utah county georgia so i mean i was just absolutely amazed at what i did find and that there were black drummers in southern militias before the civil war that's just shocking i found that uh from a dissertation that a canadian young woman had written that there were there was a festival music in West Africa called Jongo that consisted of drums and flutes. <laughs> so finding these dual roots, in other words, West African roots of it, and then American military roots of it, which African-Americans brought, well, Africans brought to this country would have heard and encountered. Militia, musters, uh, training days, that were done because everybody was in the militia in those days. It wasn't just the national guard, everybody, all men were expected to be involved. And uh, so this is very interesting stuff. So that's how it started. And that's how I got to work on it.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Like I, you raised a really good point about how, now that we have this, these digital resources, how much further we can go. And I was like blown away by like what you were saying, all these places that these bands were piped you know, popping up, you know, and all these different scenarios. And I thought it was really interesting too, like I over the course of the book, you could really tell that you'd spend a lot of time with some of these like standard Tennessee newspapers, for instance. And I thought it was really impressive how you sort of took a step back and said, this paper would paint the same event this way and this way. You know, so you kind of had sort of a almost ethnographic reading of the sources along the way in terms of like you were good about Kind of rounding out the descriptions of these bands with different types of papers. Can you talk about that process too, about how you sort of familiarized yourself enough with these different, you know, newspapers, is different sources to kind of like really step back that way?
1: Well, you can kind of notice the tendencies of the different papers. Memphis had so many at that time. I mean, the bulletin, the commercial, the, the first commercial, there was a second one later, the avalanche, the appeal. And the post, and of course the post is the most interesting because it was run by a union general who had fought in the civil war and stayed in Memphis afterwards to uphold the standards of the Republican party. And he was very interested in making sure that blacks could vote and he covered their activities. So it's a very interesting paper. It was not run by African Americans, but it was run by a general of the union army who considered himself sympathetic to African Americans. And so uh, whose name was Eaton and so a lot of useful information including the first mention of the poll bearers as the organization co- occurs in a post but the public ledger was as anti-black as the post was pro-black and the appeal only slightly less perhaps. Uh, the avalanche is weirdly ambivalent and at times actually embraced the socialists that were running the national party during the 1870s, which was just absolutely amazing for a white Southern newspaper, but they were, they said, uh, the solution to racial problems, solution to all these problems is to support the national party, the party of working. And, uh, I thought that's pretty radical for 1870 something Memphis, <laughs> but it was cool, you know, to see that. And, uh, they all covered these doing, they, uh, even the most racist papers from Memphis were f- fascinated by the organizations and the activities that the Black community chose to engage in. They were uh, unique and different, and I guess it caught their attention. Uh, after about 1879 or 80, it seems as if the newness kind of wore off. and They just quit mentioning these things. But uh, during the 1870s, there's a lot of mention, and to the point of mentioning the in the slogans on banners, which I thought was really cool, the the colors and dresses of uniforms of the various benevolent societies that played, I thought that was really awesome. It's like uh, we actually can. Cons- the, the, the the appeal actually told us what color they had on, what uh, the colors of their outfits. I thought that was kind of. Interesting. And another thing I have to mention is the descriptions that so resemble New Orleans as to be mind boggling. In other words, the appeal complained about a black band. Why do they play slow, mournful music on the way to the cemetery and then come back beating the stuffing out of the bass drum and playing this lively upbeat music on the way back? Well, that's so interesting because we think of that as something New Orleans does. And I'm strongly of the opinion that this was probably ubiquitous in southern towns and cities, Pensacola, Mobile, Memphis, Jackson, Mississippi. I'm just very suspicious that this was not something that was unique to New Orleans. What is unique to New Orleans is it didn't die out there. In other words, where it faded in Memphis and other cities, it continued down there and thus is preserved there in a way but uh so all of this was very interesting and you you do get a tone of these papers as you read through years of them and and issues of them you so you start seeing their emphases and uh how they feel about certain things
0: yeah and kind of going more into the content um you were already talking about this a little bit with like the benevolent societies often being the backing for these bands and you talked earlier about you know political rallies and that kind of things. Can you kind of for our listeners talk a little bit more about some of the common scenarios that you would see, like types of events and rituals you would see these band in, um, for listeners? Well,
1: obviously in the societies were formed, as I mentioned in the book, in lieu of life insurance, which really wasn't well known in the South for anyone prior to the war. And in the, in, after the civil war, the ex-Confederates began creating life insurance companies. Jefferson Davis moved to Memphis and helped form the Southern Life Insurance Company, but they would not write policies for Black people. So Black people who recently freed from slavery basically began to form these benevolent societies and what uh, which in New Orleans they are called social aid and pleasure clubs, which is a good picture of what they were, but in the most of the south they were called benevolent societies and a man could join and pay his dues and knew that if he got sick they would chop his wood for him and take care of his wife and kids and if he died they would bury him with music that was kind of the way it was referred to with music and um so the societies would pray you know to call attention to themselves and to their members and we have accounts in Memphis of them parading in memory of Charles Sumner, the member of Congress. I think he was a senator who labored so hard on behalf of Black Americans. Um, they uh, were, uh, they paraded in, in uh, honor of Thomas Swan, the founder of the Pole Bearers, who died in 1874, which was described as the largest parade in the history of Memphis. And this was a black parade. Uh, absolutely, you know, so this, and uh, in honor of the 15th Amendment, there was a parade and all of the different black organizations and bands participated in honor of the amendment that gave them the right to vote. So these were common. Picnics were another place where this would take place because the dues that members paid did not pay enough, did not generate enough income to pay for all the burying and keeping up the cemeteries and things. So they held two, three, four-day picnics, Memorial Day, which back then was called Decoration Day, Uh, Labor Day, Uh, July the 4th. Huge holiday in the Black community and pretty much in only in the Black community in those days. Uh, White Southerners considered it a day of mourning, and some of them actually draped their houses with Black sashes uh, because Vicksburg was surrendered on the fourth that really doesn't change much until after world war ii so it's very interesting how uh you know these were the primary events others would have been meetings of the loyal league or the union league which were political organizations sponsored amongst the black community by the republican party and uh at you know, to rally them to go to the polls, they were typically marched to the polls because there was safety in numbers, and uh, you know this would go on. They they would uh, they play these political rallies. Later, we start seeing it in other ways. We see it in connection with minor league baseball, certainly in Nashville. That seems to be the only city where it was prominent. Although there's a mention of a guy saying, we had a band like that when we had minor league in Mobile, but this band in Nashville is better. So evidently, other baseball clubs may have used that method. They actually were known, I've got descriptions of them carrying a sign, baseball today, 3 p.m. Dell Park in front of the band that was playing. But they were generally called an Ethiopian fife and drum band and on one article, a Senegambian fife and drum band. But it appears that they had a name and it was called the Spirits of 76. Now, what's interesting is later, we've got them being hired by, a group of white women called the Suff- uh, Tennessee Suffrage League. And they are have, hiring this black fight and drum man from the baseball games to play for their rally where they're trying to get the state of Tennessee to give women the vote, 1916. So I think that's kind of interesting. And then the Rotarians hire them to go to the National Rotary Convention in Atlanta, and they play down there. And, uh, you know, they're kind of a bridge to the modern era. The last member died in 1947 and was mentioned in the Nashville Tennessean. But uh, five years before that, Alan Lomax had rediscovered the genre down in Quitman County, Mississippi uh, by discovering Sid Hemphill, the father of Jesse May Hemphill. So this was very interesting stuff. But uh, so, yeah, advertising, parties, uh, picnics, possibly funerals, although certainly not in the modern era. Um, and the bass drum would be beat in a certain pattern to called the dead lick to warn people in rural Black communities that someone had died. They didn't have telephones, and so they would tell the bass drummer to go to the hill where they had picnics and beat the bass drum. They said if the conditions were right, that could carry five, six miles, sometimes more than that, and people would hear it in that certain beat they knew meant that someone had died. And then the marshals in the organization would go around to the doors and knock on doors and say, you know, Mrs. Harris died. And they would have to go to the funerals or be fined. Every member had to attend every funeral. That was the way it was set up. So it's a very interesting thing. And very West African, you yes, me, be beating the drum to tell people that someone had died to send those messages uh, was a very West African kind of thing and it's very interesting.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of amazing, like all these different scenarios, all these different social contexts that you're talking about here, that being in these bands gave a lot of these Black performers, you know, access to a number of spaces and a different, you know, kind of some mobility here socially throughout the 19th and as you continue to 20th century, that really was, you know, the book is kind of also painting here the role of these african-american performers and you know communities in terms of how they're claiming public space or places in society here right especially like as you talked about with like the um different political rallies and stuff too so can you talk a little bit how over the course of the time period that you look at the book how did the reception to these performers fluctuate right like at one point, were people like, yes, fife and drum bands, and other points, were they like, ooh, no, no more, like, specifically?
1: Early wise. on, mostly ooh, no. Uh, there was obviously a considerable amount of resentment, at least in Tennessee, partially because, obviously, you know, you've got people that have been defeated in war, and the result of them being defeated in war was that uh, under the governor of the time, Governor William Ganaway Brownlow, he said traitors must be made, treason must be made odious. So his view was that anyone who supported the Confederacy would be stripped of their civil rights. They can't vote. They can't hold public office. So most of the most white Tennesseans, unless they were willing to join the Republican Party and claim under oath that they had never supported the Confederacy, uh, were stripped of their voting rights. They could not vote. Then African-Americans were given the vote. So there was this extreme bitterness that you know black people were being allowed to vote, and whites who had moved to Tennessee from the north, but majority of native-born whites, except for a handful that claimed they never supported the Confederacy and probably actually had, uh, were not being allowed to vote. So there was this very this uh, this bitterness, this hatred, and it couldn't safely be taken out on the north so it was basically directed at the freedmen at uh, at black people and uh you know in memphis the hatred was just directed very heavily toward edward shaw who was uh appointed wharf master of the city and there was a considerable amount of hatred for him He was very clearly very intelligent and extremely militant if you read his speeches it's remarkable you get to wonder he wasn't murdered but uh he was very eloquent. He ran for sheriff of Shelby County. So, you know, early on, the, the fight and drumming was clearly resented and you, uh, in the white community and you see it. You see uh, the complaints. Do we live amongst civilization or barbarity? One man wrote uh, another one said, uh, you know, our women and children are not safe just because they're hearing this drumming on the edges of town. And, um, you know, Barbara Lewis, who was the Republican congressman at the time, said, uh, we are men of peace, but uh, no one is drilling militarily, but the commercial appeal said, uh, we don't believe Barbara Lewis, The, the blacks are drilling and preparing for war against us. And uh, they, there was really this perception that it meant, uh, you know, in, in the white community, fife and drum was a like military music. It wasn't used for anything else. And if black people were doing this, they must be planning to raise an army. And that was kind of the, uh, the mentality. It varied from place to place. And the further east you went in Tennessee, where, where whites were Republicans and never had owned slaves, they were not nearly as hostile. Uh, and that's obvious. In Nashville, once it became associated with baseball, there was quite a, uh, there was a different attitude. You see letters to the Tennessee for and against. Um, only in the 60s and 70s did it become this kind of universally acclaimed thing, because we're getting into a period where there's this idea that folk or is rapidly vanishing, we're losing it we've got to capture it and keep it before it disappears and that was kind of the view of Charles Seeger to a point and his wife Ruth Crawford Seeger and it filters down to Pete Seeger and the Almanac Singers and you know you get to Dave Von Rock and Bob Dylan and suddenly you've got this whole folk thing folk music is important, we like it, young kids like it And so the Smithsonian has a folk festival and Newport has a folk festival. And, you know, Smithsonian and Newport both call up the Youngs, G.D. Young. And uh, why am I drawing a blank? Uh, But anyway, the Young family out of Como, which Alan Lomax had discovered. And they're a fife and drum band. At one festival, they were called the Southern Fife and Drum Corps. And at another one, they're called the uh, Afro-American Fife and Drum Corps. But either way, uh, people are getting exposed to this music. And now there's another one down in Como, used to be called the Como Fife and Drum Band. They play the inaugural New Orleans Heritage Festival. So this music becomes associated with music that is endangered, that's being rediscovered along with these ancient blues men that are being rediscovered like Skip James and Furry Lewis. And so it all plays into an, uh, an ethos that probably not accidentally is occurring alongside the civil rights movement and white kids going south to work for SNCC, the student nonviolent coordinating committee, going south to work for CORE, the Congress to Racial Equality. So you've got this whole ethos where there's an interest in racial equality, there's an interest in folklore, there's an interest in being counterculture hippies. So all of this is playing into this, and fife and drum suddenly becomes a very popular music, at least with the counterculture youth during the 60s and early 70s. And there are some documentary efforts. Alan Lomax did the lion's share of that. David Evans does some as well. He makes this wonderful film called Gravel Springs, Fife and Drum uh, about Otha Turner, who's by far the most famous fife player, black fife player in American history. But having said that, that's about the only time it's ever been universally acclaimed. And I sadly feel that even now the interest is waning again. There's only two bands left that we know of, and they're both in Mississippi within a few miles of each other. And it just seems like the music is endangered again because kids are into rap and they're into R&B music and other popular culture things. not in, you know This is something they seem to be saying old people do. <laughs> so that's kind of where we're at but for a lot of the years there was a lot of hostility toward it it was associated with black people voting that wasn't popular in the south it was associated with black people running for office associated with black people saying we have a right to parade the streets of these southern towns that's not gonna go uncontested after the Nader, after the 1890s when segregation becomes a law everywhere So, you know, uh, the music was, and then it disappears. It's there, but because, you know, race relations were at such a low point, why we call it the Nader, um, white newspapers don't mention it anymore. They're not going to black picnics. The only time they're going to mention a black picnic is if there's a cutting or a shooting. They're not going to mention uh, what kind of music was held. They might mention uh, black people had a two-day picnic south of town all they're going to say you know they're not going to mention who played or what kind of music was there fortunately we've got some interviews with people like honey boy edwards where he tells us what kind of music was there he mentions a picnic in oakland tennessee Fayette county where there was both blues he said memphis minnie was there and a fife and drum band awesome thank goodness somebody interviewed him when he was living in the 90s about what he could remember but that's you know so that's kind of where it is
0: yeah and i was when you were talking about all that, too, I know at some points you talked about how also, like, for instance, like, brass bands kind of in some points also became, you know, more of a favored, like, wind band tradition. So um, can you talk a little bit about that, about how maybe the reception, you know, maybe compares to something like other wind band traditions, like the brass bands and stuff?
1: Well, I think that, you know, it, the brass bands were a function of the cities. Don't get me wrong, there were fife and drum bands during Reconstruction, at least, in the bigger cities too. But it was easier to get brass instruments in the city because you had, remember, you had a war and it's an unusual kind of war because both armies were from the United States. You know, it's a civil war. So as the Confederates are demobilizing and as the Union is demobilizing, uh, they had bands. So now they're breaking all this up and they're just, there's a bunch of instruments. And uh, we think that they these instruments end up in secondhand shops and in the bigger cities, New Orleans, Memphis, Mobile. And so black people are now being paid for their labor, not probably what they should be paid for their labor, but they're being paid and they can afford to go get their heart's desire. I want a trumpet or a cornet. I want a saxophone. Uh, I want a drum. There's also stories that the Union Army, in some cases, left behind instruments and gave them to the Black community. Certainly in Tallahassee, the tradition is that the departing Union soldiers gave drums to the Black community. And as late as 1992, they were beating drums on Emancipation Day in parks in Tallahassee, whether that still goes on. uh, Geraldine McGregory mentions it in a book she wrote. She's an awesome writer. And uh, whether that's going on since 1992, I don't know. But it did go on as late as 1992, and you know, it's not always uncommon for there to be drums without the five, either because the five player died, or they just don't see the need. Um, but at any rate, uh, the brass bands tend to be in the cities. There are exceptions. So Frederick. Uh, I'm drawing a blank today. I'm getting old already. Uh, the man that wrote Ben Here in Golf, Frederick Ramsey, uh, he, he encountered a rural brass band in Alabama. But that's not that common. Most of our brass bands were in the cities. I've got plenty of references in Memphis, in Pensacola, in New Orleans, and, and even in, in, even in towns near Memphis like Somerville. So it's not uncommon in the cities and the cities start passing ordinances against Fife and Drum. We didn't talk about that. I don't even discuss it all that much in my book. But Fife and Drum has a problem that some, I think some of it is subterfuge, meaning there was just a lot of racism, period. But there's also the fact that bass drums, even today, you're at a parade. If you've got horses around, bass drums scare horses. They scare dogs. They scare cats. And nowadays, there's a modern problem that they didn't have back then. They set off car alarms, <laughs> But back then, uh, they'd scare a horse. Well, you say, what's the big deal? Well, the horse was attached to a carriage. So the fife and drum band comes past, scares the horse. Horse takes off down the road uncontrollably with the carriage and maybe the horse gets killed maybe the carriage gets broken into firewood maybe the woman riding in the carriage gets injured or killed so the city start passing these ordinances to prevent horse runaways at least that's the uh, official reason banning fife and drum bands now how that's any different from the brass bands i don't know but they forbid them and so this is probably another reason why fife and drum becomes associated with the rural areas and brass bands more so with the cities with the bigger areas, and that's going to remain the case from you know the 1880s on. But uh, they, there are remarkable similarities in the cities, and particularly New Orleans, the brass bands are used at the funerals, just like the fife and drum bands would be in the rural community. And uh, in some cases, such as Henning, Tennessee. There seems to be this interchangeable nature. In other words, the drummers who played for the Henning Brass Band, the Black Brass Band, were also the drummers that played in the Fife and Drum Band there. So there seems to be some back and forth there in some communities. Denmark, Tennessee, maybe another place. We know about their Black Brass Band. We don't know about a Fife and Drum Band, except that Charles Wolfe claimed he found one in Madison County in the 1980s. I I ran that lead down as far as I could follow it and didn't come up with anything tangible. But we know Denmark, Tennessee had a big black and drum band, I mean brass band. And it seems likely that there may have been a and drum adjunct to that brass band. So this is the way, and some of these guys had all. Robert Wardlow that I mentioned in my book, I was amazed by the way, I just have to say this, to be able to put together really human biographies of these ancient black musicians from white southern newspapers it was just absolutely amazing i've got the memphis appeal i think it's the appeal where the guy kicks a hole in stephen grayson's bass drum and he says if i get my hands on the guy that did it i'll kill him and i mean this is 1872 you know and i'm just amazed here i mean you get something of grayson's personality you learn something about you know and robert warlow robert warlow's to book everybody says i'm a black democrat i support the ex-confederates i'm on their side lincoln once offered the south to let them keep their slaves if they would end the war and i don't trust him and i'm a black democrat And he called his band robert warlow's conservative colored band uh and the, you know the white southern newspapers loved it they said hire him he's reliable and he's a good guy and he's on our side and you know you support him but uh he had a field band that's another way of saying a fife and drum band he had a brass band which you know and he had a string band and he advertises all three of the papers. he said you know i've got a field band i've got a string band which means banjo and violin or fiddle and i've got a fife and drum he called it a field band so I think that's very interesting. You know, this is not entirely uncommon. You want to, if you're in business, you want to please what people want, and you never know which one they might want. So you got them all ready to line up. And even weirder, he said, "I'll play at any watering place." And I discussed that in the book. And I said, "We today we'd say he's saying he'd play in a bar," but I think he really meant Iuka Springs. Uh, you know, mineral wells in Mississippi, these resort hotels where people went to get the water, take the mineral water. I think that's what he meant by watering place, but it's very interesting, you know, Uh, and so, yeah, all these bands were around, you know, there were black string bands, there were black and drum, there were black brass bands, and all these things were had their popularities. Some of them were on the boats going up and down the Mississippi River. So it's all quite interesting. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that wealth of information. There's so many fascinating, I think, rabbit holes that you could probably continue but um, beyond even this book and whatnot. And, um, you know, you've presented for the reader here and um, like you were just getting at so much information and so many possibilities to explore further with the swipe and drum band tradition. And you were also talking earlier a little bit about how, you know, during the 60s and 70s, during that interest in folklore and whatnot, that there was sort of a resurgence for a minute um, in this tradition. So how do you see yourself in this book building on or maybe countering that wave that was going on in the 60s and 70s? In other words, in 2022, what is your hope that this book and that your work will also offer in terms of, you know, this tradition?
1: Well, I'll be honest. Uh, New Orleans brass band music thrills me, and, and, and I take a lesson from it because it hit a nadir in the late 1960s. It was down to two bands, and then they began to become sporadic. And Danny Barker, who was still living at the time, was asked by the Fairview Baptist Church to start a club to keep youth out of trouble. So he starts a brass band called the Fairview brass band, later becomes the Hurricanes, and Leroy Jones, the trumpet player, the young trumpet player from New Orleans, was a member. Uh, A group of black kids in New Orleans sees the Fairview Baptist Church brass band and in the early 70s and says, we want to do that too, and they call themselves the Rebirth Brass Band, and then another group of kids sees, I guess, the Rebirth and the Fairview Baptist Church Band, and they call themselves the Dirty Dozen. And so we go from this point at where it looked like it was going to go extinct in about 1970. And today there are fifteen or sixteen black brass bands in New Orleans with new ones forming all the time. And there are New Orleans inspired brass bands in other cities. There's you know mama dig downs and different ones that are up north, Chicago, New York. I mean, even in overseas, even in Japan and other places, there are now New Orleans inspired brass bands. So if brass band music could come that close to extinction and be brought back from the abyss through awareness, my hope is that Black Fife and Drum, which is down to the Hurt family band from Sardis and Sardé Thomas and the Rising Star Fife and Drum band from Cenotopia, I'm hoping that through interest and awareness, maybe young kids particularly african american kids may say this is worth keeping let's let's pick up this tradition and 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 roll with it you know and i'm under no illusions rebirth did not simply preserve black brass band music they changed it they they brought bebop into it they brought caribbean music into it but that's better than extinction and i'm sure that if young people pick up black fife and drum music it's not going to entirely remain what it was with Otha turner and that older generation they're going to bring some aspect of new music into it perhaps but that's again that's better than extinction uh dead things don't change but things that are living do adapt and and develop and i'm hoping that this will become a living form of music and not simply something that we have videos of when it did exist
0: awesome thank you john for kind of reflecting on that and lots of exciting stuff folks you need to read this book and (laughs) uh, learn about this history here um was there anything that we haven't touched on already that you wanted to share with our listeners about your book project or you know this tradition in general
1: well i think uh i think we've covered the uh the bulk of it i do think that evidence of it in other states is going to be out there i'd be shocked if it wasn't widespread in gadston county florida i have a feeling it went on there quite a bit at one time uh there are references to it in the sea islands of georgia uh i think it's going to prove to be in alabama i've got over one reference to it in louisiana so I think we're gonna find that this was a lot more ubiquitous than has been thought. And uh, I want you know, more about this type of music in other States to come out, Texas and elsewhere, because I think it you know, needs to be discussed.
0: Try to work on that for the Alabama side of things. I'll get on that. Um, thank you, John, for talking to us about your work here. Um, I was curious, what other projects are you working on right now?
1: My dissertation is very different in a way of being similar and different. Uh, It goes back to a paper I wrote for Dr. Evans 21 years ago called Action Speaks Louder Than Words, Black Music and the Recording Industry in Shreveport, Louisiana. And uh, in this dissertation, I'm arguing that Shreveport should not have been overlooked. It should have been placed alongside Muscle Shoals and Memphis and Nashville as a southern regional recording city. And so I'm discussing the studios, the clubs, and the performers that made Shreveport a scene during the 60s and 70s particularly. But I'm actually going back to 1948, which is the year that Stan's Record Store opened and the year that the Louisiana Hayride was started. And I'm discussing the blues recordings that were made there in the 40s and 50s and then going on into the modern soul music era. And Really, all the way up to 1998, 50 years, which is a pretty neat slice of Shreveport music history. And, uh, you know, I think this book needs to be written. I live in Memphis, but Memphis has been written about and written about and written about. Um, th- there are stories I hope to tell about Memphis or about West Memphis, Arkansas. But at the same time, I think this Shreveport work is desperately needed. And uh, so that's where I'm headed at this point and uh because i wrote the paper 21 years ago i've got a framework really already in place kind of a uh, you know a foundation that's been laid so you know i'm beginning to work on it
0: excellent i will look forward to reading that
1: in the future Great. but
0: thank you for sharing uh you know your thoughts with us and talking to us about the book all right
1: it was a pleasure
0: and listeners just to give you a quick recap this was a discussion with john shaw Author of *Following the Drums: African American Fife and Drum Music at Tennessee*, published by the University of Press of Mississippi in 2022. This is Emily Allen, and I'll see you next time here on the New Books Network.